this weekend, Corey went away to uh, a women's retreat down in Yale, Washington. My parents took the girls because they wanted to uh, take them to the Puyallup Fair. So here I am, home all alone, and I thought, I should have a man night, a testosterone night. And so I bought a big, fat steak. I mean, like a two-and-a-half-inch thick one. Tommy saw it. It's really big. And uh, I even had my vegetables, Corey. I had grilled asparagus. Okay. And then we went and saw a, a man movie, right? We, we saw a man movie. I went out with a couple guys, and we saw this movie, The Expendables. Right? I, I, I picked a movie that I knew Corey would never want to see. So this movie is produced, written, and starring Sylvester Stallone. Does that tell you anything? Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of what I expected. Lots of explosions and, and, and really bad dialogue and cheesy one-liners. It was really difficult to watch, actually. Um, <laughs> and part of what made it so painful for me to watch was not, not just, just the bad acting, but it was that the story didn't really take me anywhere. It was just a bunch of unconnected events. There was no overarching purpose. You didn't feel like... There was a purpose for this film, Sylvester. What was going on there? And then it hit me that there have been times in my life when I've been going, 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 busy, 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 doing even good things, but I felt empty inside in the midst of my busyness. Because sometimes I lose track of why I'm doing what I do. I just feel like life becomes a series of uncontextualized events that end up making me feel like a Stallone film without muscles. In fact, usually when I'm talking to people who are kind of in pain about life or kind of confused about life, most of the time they're feeling the same way. Like I just don't know what my purpose is. You ever felt like that? You may have started well, maybe in a career path or an educational program, but you lost track of of the why and and the why, uh, why you're doing it and the for whom you're doing this stuff. And I think all people from time to time can slip into this rut and we forget what we're here for. We forget where our value comes from. We forget that others have value that transcends what they can produce on worldly terms. And that's where the book of Genesis can be such a great help to us. Genesis reminds us that before we were ever here, God was here and that God has a story And part of his story was creating the universe that you and I live in. Part of the story was creating this planet and humanity. Part of that story was creating you and I in his image. And that means, that means that you and I have much more value than we often realize. For the next two weeks, we're going to be exploring what it means or could mean to be made in the image of God. Are you ready? All right, let's stand up. Thank you, Tim. Tim's ready. And I'm going to be reading, uh, starting in Genesis 1, verse 26 through 2.17. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. He set it apart because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Notice this shift. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made heaven, made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist or a, or a flow used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living soul, a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing in the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there's gold. Now the gold of that land is good. The Bedellum and Onyx stone are there also. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Father, thank you for this incredible, incredible word. It reminds us that we are created, not accidental, created in your incredible image. And Father, I confess and we confess that we, do, we don't fully grasp what that means. And we sure, surely don't live as though we believe it or know what it means. And so I pray by the power of your Spirit, you would guide us as we dig into your Word and we trust you to make it living and active in our hearts, that you would change us through your Word this evening. Amen. You may be seated. Wow. 
Just before we, we dig right into this, I just kind of want to recap what we did last week. Last week was the first week in, of our series in Genesis, and we did a, basically a flyover of Genesis 1 through 2, verse 3. And we begin the series by looking at these scriptures, these, these verses, and asking, what kind of text is this? What exactly does this mean? And what we concluded is that the point of Genesis 1 is... Um, is not to show how creation happened. It's not to show when creation happened. This, this is kind of weird. It's not even to show that God created creation. That was assumed. That was assumed in the day that this was written, that, that God created this. What Genesis 1 is about is telling us which God created everything. There were rival stories, rival religions, and this story tells us that the one true God, Yahweh, created the heavens and the earth, he created all living things, and he created you and I in his image. And this creation, every living thing, the planet and you and I, God saw, and he said it's very good, very pleasing to him. Now, what I want to do is go back to verse 26 in chapter 1, which we were only able to skim over last week. And I want to talk about, explore a little bit about what it could mean to be made in God's image. Listen. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, including the spiders, Carol. Now, who's talking here? Who's God talking to? Who's this let us create man in our image? Is he talking in the royal third person like the football player Ocho Cinco often does in interviews? You know, we're going to dinner after this, or, you know... No, the, the grammar, the Hebrew grammar doesn't really support the royal third person, so God isn't just talking to himself. Is God having an internal conversation, maybe with the Son and the Spirit here? That's one theory that's been proposed. It's, it, it's possible, but it's, it's probably not likely. We don't see him talking like that any other way. He's most likely addressing the heavenly hosts, and he's, he's telling them of his plan to make us in his image, because that verse is followed up by this one. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God creates males and females, and they are both equally created in his image. So what does it mean to be made in God's image? Do we somehow look like God? And if God created males and females in his image, does that mean he's male and female? And there are so many races and a diversity of people, even in this room. Lots of different shades of colors, different eyes and noses and ears. Is God just a mixture of all these things? What does it mean to be made in God's image? Elsewhere in Scripture, we learn that, that God is spirit, that he's not, he doesn't have a body except for when he's incarnate in Jesus Christ. So being made in God's image doesn't mean that we're literally looking like God in some way. So what does it mean? Well, let's have a look at the Hebrew word for image, Salem. Salem. 
In the ancient Near East, Salem, or image, had to do with a representation of a deity. You see, in some religions around, uh, when ancient Israel was around, they had local deities for each town. So it would be something like this. There would be a, a, a local god for Bellingham, and maybe one for Ferndale, and one for the county. County folks need a god too. And let's say um, that, uh, and so what would happen is that each of these local deities would have a king, and th- that king would be a human ruler over each of these, over Bellingham, and over Ferndale, and over the county. And that king would, would be said to have God, that god's Salem, or image. So let's say the, the god of Bellingham chose Tommy Lingbloom to be the king of Bellingham. And he says, Tommy, I'm going to give you my Salem, my image. You are made in my image. And what that would mean is that Tommy would represent that god's character and his authority. He would represent his power. And so we better, we, we better listen to Tommy because he directly represents the god of Bellingham, right? Now, not that Tommy would do this, but you could see how such a, a setup would be easily abused. You could see how that king could just say anything he wanted and say, hey, I'm made in God's image. You better listen to me. Because if you crossed the king, it's the same thing as crossing the God. If you were to abuse Tommy, you'd be abusing the God Tommy represented. Now, here's the amazing thing about the Genesis creation story. Last week, we established that there's only one God, Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, our creator, not a bunch of territorial deities. And this one God created men and women in his Salem, in his image. All men and women, boys and girls, in his image. This is exactly what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 8, which Christy just read. The almighty God who spoke the sun, moon, and stars into existence is the same one who creates you and I and all people in his image. Not just men, not just kings, not just dictators, not just Tommy. That means everyone, including you, is made as his representative. How would that change how you see yourself? How you see the people around you? Look around you. Seriously, look around you. Every person you see is made in God's Salem, in his image. Every person you see is God's representative. Now, Salem, or image, can also have a physical dimension. Let's say King Tommy expanded his kingdom now from Bellingham, and he started to rule all of western Washington, west of the Cascades. Very ambitious of you, Tommy. Well, in a day and age without television, without cars and trains and and mass transportation, if I live in Bellingham with my family, and, and Tommy's capital, let's say it's down in southern Washington, a place like Vader... Tommy lives, his capital's in Vader, Washington, on the Southern I-5 corridor. Okay, so all my life, I've got no TV, I've got no way to see Tommy, I've got no radio, I couldn't know what his voice sounded like. What Tommy would do is in, 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 in towns like Bellingham and Seattle and all the little towns, he would put a bust of himself in these towns. So I'm taking my kids to Little Cheerful on a Saturday morning, and I'm down there by the bus station, and instead of that art, Tommy knocked that art thing down, Eric, and put his... His, his bust up there. He'd probably be on a bicycle. And I could take my kids to breakfast and I could say, look, kids, 
That's what the king looks like. That's the one who rules us. Spreading his representation all around. Now, here's another thing that would happen. Tommy and other kings would oftentimes give gifts of food or they would throw a party. And you know where they would do this. They would hand out the food or throw the party right around their little statue. So they'd have representatives up there in Bellingham and, and, you know, if we're going through a hard time, he might throw some food out or have a big block party. And we would all dance around and say, oh, there's Tommy's bus. King Tommy provided us with this and he represents God so-and-so. But King Tommy could also put you and your family into slavery. And so you walk by that same bus and you're cursing it now. You see where this is going. If you're made in God's image, all of creation should be able to look at you and say, hey, that must be what God is like. You should be able to look at your neighbor and say, that must be what God is like. Now, I know what you're thinking, because I'm thinking the same thing. I sure hope not. That's a lot of pressure, first of all. Or, I sure hope not, because I know my neighbor, and I hope God's nothing like that. Or, I know Chris, and I hope God's nothing like that. Well, fear not. There is much to be expected of us as people made in God's image. But we do fall short, and we are not supposed to be mistaken for God. And this is where the word likeness, he created us in his image and his likeness. That word likeness is very important because to be in God's likeness means we represent him and share some of his similarities, but we are not divine. Okay, we are not divine. And over the centuries, people usually get this idea wrong in two major extremes. On the one hand, people typically fail to see themselves as valuable enough. We fail to see each other as valuable enough. And so that's where you get things like genocide and slavery and infanticide and these horrible things that we do to each other because we don't see each other as made in God's image. On the other side... We get way off track, and we think we're something more special than we are. All you need to do is go down to Holly Street across from Rocket Donuts and check out the Church of the Divine Man. Okay? That's the other extreme. And what Genesis does for us is corrects these two wrong extremes. There's one God who created heaven and earth, and that one God created you and I in his image. You are extremely valuable. But he created you and I to be dependent on him, not to be independent and divine in our own right. So, we're talking about how God created us in his image and his likeness. And that is, I mean, we think about that. That is mind-blowing revelation. If we just stopped right there and we really applied that, how would you see yourself differently? How would you see the people you interact with differently? But that revelation alone doesn't really help us know what God created us to be. How are we to live in this image? I'm being very, I'm generalizing a lot here, but there are two main ways. One is in our ability, we're made in God's image, and two, in our mission or our vocation, we're made in God's image. 
Our ability refers to the unique way that out of all creation, human beings alone are able to relate to God. We have reason and ability to think and articulate. And that's why we go and take Ryan Wasserman's class in philosophy to learn how to reason a little better, because some of us aren't very reasonable. Humans have a consciousness. We have a moral code and a language. Human beings have the desire and ability to create. J.R.R. Tolkien, many of you are one of your favorite authors, I know, uh, called human beings sub-creators. The fact is that God is the only one who can create out of nothing, but he's given us lots of raw materials to work with, and it's a human instinct. It's a human trait made in God's image to want to create beauty. And, uh, you know, I think of uh, the Wilsons. You've got now built two houses for yourself, and you've put a lot into that, a lot of thought and creativity into it, and it's something that inspires you, and this is fun, and listening to Marsha play this piece, that Bach wrote, but you stamped it with your Marsha-ness, and you were able to bring that creativity. There's so many ways that, uh, that we create, and so don't just think of artists here. And most of all, we have this God image ability in the area of relationships. In the Genesis account, God only speaks to human beings in a way that has this conversational. He doesn't do that with animals. He converses with us. And in fact, next week, we're going to deal almost entirely with this ability area, this relationship area, that aspect of being made in God's image. But today, what we're going to focus on is the mission that comes with bearing God's image. Genesis 1, 26 and 28 speaks of, of, of human beings being charged with ruling the created order. I know I just said that and you're thinking what's next, but I just want to pause there a minute. You're created to be a ruler. You're created to be a ruler. Not a yardstick. You're created to rule. rule over animals and sea and the sky. In fact, one of the main ways we're to reflect God's character or imaging to all of creation is for the way, through the way that we rule. To get more of an understanding of this mission, we need to turn to chapter 2, verse 4. Genesis 1 through, verse, through chapter 2-3 is often seen as the prologue to the whole book. It shows God as the main actor. But beginning in Genesis 2-4, we're going to see a shift. And the shift is God is still the main actor, the main player. But the shift is in this. Genesis 2 on is about humanity's reaction to what God has done. Humanity's reaction to God's grace. Humanity's reaction to being made in His image. And there are some literary tips that help us to know this is going on. For instance, there's a Hebrew word called toldot. Can you say toldot? Toldot. Yes, toldot means, it's translated as, these are the generations of, or this is the account of. Toldot, these are the generations of, or this is the account of, appears ten times in Genesis. Genesis is broken up into ten sections. This is the account of, and you can see in chapter five, this is the account of, like, this, this, group of people. In Genesis 2-4, we see the first toldot. This is the account of. 
And what this tells us now is that we're going to be getting into human history. You'll notice that compared to Genesis 1, Genesis 2 is much more narrative in structure, which means it, it reads much more like a story. It focuses on humanity's response to God. And this passage is beautiful in Hebrew. I wish my out loud Hebrew was good enough to just read a bunch to you, but it's, it's not. It would be horrible. But um, it tells of God creating the Adam, the Adam, out of the ground, which is called the Adama. Isn't that beautiful? That God, there's this word, Adama, which means ground or dirt or land. Uh, and God shapes humanity out of the Adama, and he names it Adam. Beautiful, beautiful. And then he breathes his nefesh, his breath of life into this Adam. And he becomes a living, literally, a living soul, a living being. God creates the Adam, and then he plants a garden in the east, in Eden. Eden means pleasure or delight, has to do with fertility. In Eden, God planted a garden. And I did this in our small group. I said, what pops in your head when I say garden? And all of us said, rectangular with rows of vegetables. I mean, that's kind of the American way that we say garden. What this is talking about is much more akin to, say, an English garden or a park. Think of a a large botanical garden with lots of acreage. Um, If you're a C.S. Lewis fan, think of the garden on top of the mountain in Magician's Nephew. It's walled. And there, the tree of life is there. And there's, it's not just vegetables. It's like trees. And it might be more akin to what we would call a landscaped park. Um, there's food there, but there's also, it's just massive. And there's, there's trees and it's walled. And so God creates that type of garden and puts the man in that garden. And this is what he's supposed to do in that garden. I'm looking at Genesis 2.15 now. He's supposed to cultivate it and keep it. These words cultivate, abad, and keep, shamar, are usually used in reference to priestly duties. This is fascinating. Duties like taking care of the sanctuary or the temple. They can also refer to farming activities like taking care of land or taking care of animals. So what we see is that God created us to be rulers of his creation, his representatives, and ruling over creation or having dominion of it does not give us a mandate to abuse creation. In fact, the terms used in Genesis 1 for, uh, for, for dominion are akin to like pastoring something or, or, or uh, taking good care of, stewarding it. It doesn't mean like ram every animal you see into the ground or shoot them just for fun and chop down every tree, right? The original plan was for humanity to bear God's image by ruling fairly and ruling lovingly. And all this trendy talk nowadays about being green is kind of ridiculous. It should be, that should be what we've been doing all along. God created us to be green, if you will. So um, it's kind of interesting. I read last month, like in Christianity Today, it's something like, uh, oh, evangelicals are now embracing the green movement. Really? Because... Here it says, you know, we're supposed, to, we're supposed to care for this stuff. And this, this doesn't mean that we all go now climb up in a redwood tree and go to the bathroom in a bucket and lower it down and all this kind of stuff. Unless God's calling you to that. I just, yeah. Uh, but it means that we're to rule. And our, our rule and our reign 
over the created order, and even with each other, should reflect God's image. It should not be dictatorial and and authoritarian in such a way that we're crushing everything around us. We're not only to be caretakers of creation, just the way it is, like managers, but we're we're to be actively expanding God's reign through our care for each other and our care through the created order. Expanding his creativity. And this is This is the cool part. God gives us a vocation. This is, by the way, just personally, this is foundational for why one of our core values as a church is seeing our vocation as mission. Work is not a bad word. Notice that God gives us a vocation before the fall. You ever thought about that? God gives us vocation. He gives us work to do as a species, before the fall. Kind of a common thought in our culture that I've experienced is, work sucks. You see all the bumper stickers, I'd rather be, I'd rather be, I'd rather be. None of it's working, right? And granted, there are some pretty bad jobs out there. Maybe you should change if you hate your job. But the point is that, uh, you you know, the, the, the common, like, trend of thought is that work is a necessary evil so that I can make enough money to do what I really want to do. And that's not the, the biblical view of good work. Here we see that work is good. We're created to be creative, to contribute to God's plan for beauty and righteousness, to contribute ultimately to God's plan of glorifying his name, that, that the world would know the true character of God. So how might you view your work as holy? How might you view your work as holy? How might you be God's representative in your workplace? How might you be God's representative in retirement or joblessness? How might your business or your skill or your craft express God's glory? See, that's why this type of message is difficult. I'm not, I can't up, stand up here and tell you exactly what that looks like for you. But I know this, there are very few jobs in this world that you cannot, that, that are impossible for you to glorify God. I mean, maybe if, you, if you're dealing drugs on the street, I'd probably advise you to stop that. That's probably not glorifying. You know, if you're into prostitution, that would not be a great thing to be involved in. But you can be, you know, you can be a janitor and, and clean toilets for God. I remember I was on a buoy tender in the Coast Guard. It's my first unit. And I was an engineer, but there was all these deckhands. And what they would do is they, like you could imagine, pull up buoys. And, you know, these buoys are hideous. They have all this marine growth on them. And one of the jobs of these deck guys is to take these flat scrapers. And they're in car hearts and hard hats. And they're out there in the nastiest weather. And they're scraping these mussels and clams and starfish off the buoys. They're cleaning them up. And guts of these things are all over them. And then they would come into the galley to eat. And this just stinks because they've been rotting. And it's hideous. Not a good job, right? Like you don't, someday I want to be that guy. But there was this kid I remember, his name was Josh. He was big and awkward and kind of strange, and he was a lover of Jesus. 
And his attitude about even cleaning these buoys was incredible. He not only did his job really well, but he rubbed off on everybody else around him to where it became an art form. It, it really did. It was like, jo- I mean, Josh just had this thing nailed, and when guys were down, his attitude would pick them up. And you could see that even in a job where you're scraping buoys, you can reflect God's image and make a difference and make even that type of job more beautiful or more meaningful for somebody else. So how might your situation be used to bring glory to God? I want to, I want to be very clear about something. This vocation that we are given... This idea to reign and to rule over God's creation is a community affair. It's a vocation he's given to our species, okay? So when I'm speaking to you, because we are very individual people, and it's important to think individually, how can I contribute to this great cause? What I, what I want to correct the, our thinking with it, is this. It's important to remember that the mandate is given to our species as a whole. And here's why that's so important. Because each of us is going to contribute in a different way. We cannot all contribute in the same way. So our value does not come by what we produce in worldly terms. And here's, here's why that's important. Because the child that's born with the birth defect is just as valuable as the child who was born on the same day who eventually becomes the CEO or the the leader of World Vision. And the elderly woman who can't get out of her house anymore and feels like she can't contribute anymore is just as valuable today as she was when she was in her 30s raising her family. And the person who suffers from depression and simply can't get out of bed sometimes and doesn't understand why and thinks they're a failure is just as valuable as the bubbly person who always gets their stuff done and and has energy to go around. You see what I'm saying? This is a community calling. And it's, it's my firm belief that sometimes there's people in our lives who we, we, we say have disabilities or inability to do something, and they're there to show us what real value is. If you want a model for the perfect image-bearer of God, look no further than Jesus the Christ. Jesus was a failure, according to worldly terms. He never owned a house. He never got married. He never had children. He never had much money, didn't have a good benefits package. Whenever he got popular, had a bunch of followers coming around, he said weird things that ticked him off, and he made everybody leave. At the end of his life, his best friends left him, and he died between two criminals. And of course, this is the same Jesus who absolutely rules over creation, who divides food with a prayer to his father, heals illnesses, calms the sea with a voice, walks on water, raises Lazarus from the dead. This is the perfect image of God. And he lays down his own life so that others might live. That's what it means to bear God's image. God lays down his life that others might live. He laid down his life for you and me. 
Now, we bear the image of God. And we haven't gotten to chapter 3 yet, but you all know what happens. We sin. We fall. That means that our image that we bear of God, if we're a mirror, it's got smudge all over it. My kids have been touching your mirror. If we're icons, we're cracked, we're broken, we're imperfect. We don't, we don't reflect the creator very well. And if God's creation is left to us as rulers, it's in a lot of trouble. And thankfully, the perfect image, Jesus the Christ, came and died and rose again to redeem us and to redeem this creation which we have screwed up and are screwing up. Now check this out. It doesn't just end with, okay, you're forgiven. Remember that lack of purpose I was talking about in the beginning. If you don't want your life to be like a bad Stallone film, trust Jesus. Because he not only rescues you, but he calls you now as a person who he fills with his spirit he begins to, to mend the brokenness in you, begins to wipe off the mirror so that you start to shine a little bit more like the living God, he makes us his agents in the world to start to restore things and to bring beauty back. And he can redeem you too if you let him. All we need to do is to admit our failure. I, Jesus, I do not reflect the Father very well very often. And what he's looking for here is for us not to just to say that, but to say, I want to trust you. I want to repent, which means turn around. Turn your life into what it was meant to be, a representation of the living God. Would you join me in prayer?